would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God, loving Heavenly Father, we bow before you and confess our desire to see Christ on all of the pages of Scripture, not merely to satisfy curiosity, but that our hearts might be stirred in greater love, affection, devotion, wonder, awe, and yes, even consecration unto Him. And pray that your tender spirit would be at work in our hearts this night toward that end, that we would see and grow in our love, affection, and devotion to our risen and reigning Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word from Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And they did not lay, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses wrote, rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearing of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. I was listening to a sermon recently in which the pastor pointed out the frequency with which the word of God speaks about blood along with the frequency with which we sing about such things within the church. A great number of our hymns speak about the precious blood of Jesus. We talk about the blood and its cleansing power. We come to places in Scripture like this in which blood is collected, it is manipulated, it is scattered. 
Now, if you've grown up in the church, you're accustomed to these types of things. But when you stop to think about it, blood is a pretty disgusting thing. It's gory. It's kind of gross. If you're in the healthcare field, it's a toxic substance. There's all sorts of protocols to deal with it. If you ever have to get blood drawn for a physical, you probably look away as the vials are drawn. There's a friend of mine who gets nauseous and lightheaded at the sight of blood. He's of no help to his wife when his children get hurt. Even talking about blood like this might make some of you a little uneasy. And so when we read about this covenant ratification ceremony and the way in which it's celebrated here in Exodus chapter 24, it's important that we look beyond the ritual itself beyond the blood itself, to some very important theological truths that are being taught here to us. And to do that, we need to put this chapter in the context of the whole. This covenant ceremony and celebration, where does it fit within the flow of what we've been talking about in our studies through the book of Exodus? And so let's think for a moment with some broad brushstrokes. God redeems His children, Israel, from captivity in the land of Egypt according to His covenant promise that was made with their forefather Abraham hundreds of years ago. The Lord saved them with His mighty arm. He defeated their enemies, guided them along the way, and brought them here to Mount Sinai, to the mountain of the Lord. And He gives them the terms of the covenant, the law of the Lord in the form of the Ten Commandments, followed by further instruction on how that law is to be worked out in life together as they venture toward the land of promise and live in it together. And all of that instruction from the Lord to Moses as the covenant mediator concluded at the end of chapter 23, the text that we looked at together last time. And now as Moses comes down from the mountain, that word of the Lord is passed along to the people. And so what we find here in chapter 24 is really one of the most remarkable scenes from all of redemptive history. Israel is being formed as a nation unto the Lord God. And this covenant ratification ceremony seals them to the Lord. And so what we want to think about this evening as we ask some questions of the text is what exactly is going on here in Exodus 24 as the covenant is ratified and as it is celebrated? What is the significance of these things for the people of Israel What is the significance for God's people today? And so first tonight, and this is really the first scene that we come across in the narrative here in verses 1 through 8, the covenant confirmed or the covenant ratified. And there are three main steps to this covenant ratification. Notice first in verses 1 and 2 that the leaders are summoned. Now, you might think all the way back to chapter 19, When the Lord was preparing the people for His arrival upon Mount Sinai, He gave clear instructions that there was a barrier to be placed around the base of the mountain, that no living thing, and of course no person, was to encroach upon the mountain lest they be struck dead. It was for their protection, and it was only Moses who was permitted to venture past that barrier and to come into the presence of the Lord. Now, you might remember that the people were fine with that arrangement as the Lord came in all of the sounds and sights and smells. They were filled with great fear at His presence as His power and holiness and righteousness was revealed. 
They did not want to hear the voice of God, but wanted Moses to go on their behalf and to speak on the Lord's behalf to them. But this time, Moses is accompanied by other representative men. There's his brother Aaron, his two sons, and 70 of Israel's elders. And perhaps these are from among those all the way back in chapter 18 who were men appointed to assist Moses in adjudicating various disputes that were arising among the people, men who represented the various tribes of Israel. And so notice what we have here is really a threefold division among the nation represented in these three groups of people. There's the children of Israel who are to keep their distance from the mountain itself, from the holy place of God's presence. There are the 70 elders along with Aaron and his sons who are permitted to venture further up the mountain but not into the glory cloud of God. And then there is Moses who alone is summoned further into the holy and intimate presence of the Lord. Now, this threefold division is really in anticipation of what the Lord is about to reveal to Moses in the structure of the tabernacle and its courtyard. In the tabernacle, of course, there is the outer courtyard in which the people are permitted to come and bring their sacrifices to God. There is the holy place with more limited access, and there is the most holy place in which only the high priest is permitted to enter once per year. And so what we see unfolding here on the mountain is we could think of it as a vertical tiered separation that will soon be evident in the horizontal structure of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is really the mountain of God flattened upon earth. And you see, the problem ever since Genesis chapter 3 is how can man enter into the presence of a holy God whom we have offended? And in remarkable fashion, it's the Lord who comes to His people through the mediator Moses on this holy mountain. But of course, this is here on the Sinai Peninsula. They're still hundreds of miles away from the land of promise in Canaan. They can't stay here forever in the wilderness, as wonderful as this presence of the Lord might be. And of course, they can't scoop the mountain up and take it with them into the land of Canaan. And that's where the tabernacle comes into play. It is this mobile tent of the Lord, which is really a mobile mountain the place in which that intimate presence of the Lord God goes with them in their very midst, guiding, protecting, leading, and directing all the way to the place of rest. Now, these are all things that we'll come back to in weeks ahead, but for now, both here at Sinai and in the tabernacle, there is this constant reminder before the people of God, He is holy and only the divinely appointed mediator can come into His presence, and we can only approach Him as He has directed through the means that He has provided. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And then as the narrative moves along, we read that the law is delivered. The law is delivered in verses 3 and 4, and this is really the next step in this covenant ceremony. Look there again at verse 3. Notice how Moses delivers two things to the people, the words of the Lord, this would be the ten words or the ten commandments, along with all of the rules. Those are all of those case laws or case studies 
that we've called the Book of the Covenant, which they are named explicitly that down in verse 7. Now, later, of course, the Lord Himself will inscribe those ten words upon the tablets of stone while Moses writes down all the other instructions, the Book of the Covenant. And so, these two things, the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, are read to the people, and we see their enthusiastic response there in verse 3. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then when we get down to verse 7, we see that the law and the book of the covenant are read to them the next day for a second reading of the law. Now, this will be important in the life of God's people. They will be without excuse when they violate the terms of the covenant. They heard it twice, and they even had an evening to think about it, still affirming their willingness and their eagerness to keep the Word of God. If you ever need to make a difficult decision in life, sometimes you say, well, let me sleep on it, and you come back to it the next day. The people knew full well what they were obligating themselves to do. You see, on the one hand, this is the only proper response. This is God who has spoken. His commandments are clear. They are true, and they are righteous, and they demand heartfelt allegiance On the other hand, if they really thought about the extent of the law and what was being required of them, they would realize their inability to obey, which, of course, is revealed in just a few chapters in that infamous encounter of the golden calf in which the law of God was broken even before it was delivered to them on the tablets of stone. We owe God allegiance, and they claim that they will obey the law in its entirety, yet as one pastor puts it, this is an incredulous promise. They are utterly incapable of keeping the law on their own, and it is utter folly to claim that they could do so. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, by works of the law, no one will be justified. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And so the leaders are summoned, the law is delivered. And as we move along, we read next of the covenant ceremony enacted in verses 5 through 8. And this is the third step in this ratification process, the covenant ceremony. We're now early the next morning, and Moses constructs an altar, which undoubtedly would have been an altar of earth because that was the explicit direction that God gave back in chapter 20, verse 24, along with 12 pillars which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, notice that both parties of the covenant are represented here. God is represented by the altar, and the people of Israel are represented by these twelve pillars. And since there's no priesthood yet established, Moses sends out some young men to assist him. Again, perhaps representatives from the tribes of Israel, though we can't know for certain. But these young men assist with the collection of animals and assist further in the burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, you'll remember in the burnt offering, the worshiper lays his hands upon that substitutionary animal, indicating the need for his transference of guilt and shame and defilements. And as that animal is prepared, the entire animal is consumed by the flames. In the peace offering, which would follow the burnt offering, a portion of the sacrifice is reserved for the worshiper so that he might eat in fellowship with God. 
Now, notice how this covenant enactment ceremony plays out. Moses collects the blood of the animals in two basins. Half of the blood is thrown upon the altar, which again represents the Lord. The terms of the covenant are reiterated, read a second time, and the people affirm their willingness to obey the terms of the covenant. And then Moses takes the other basin of blood and throws it on the people. Now, it could be that the blood is thrown upon the 12 pillars representing the people. It could be that we're meant to see such a close connection between the pillars and what they represent that to speak of one is to speak of the other. But whether the blood is thrown upon the pillars or upon the people, the point is the same. Blood is sprinkled on both parties of the covenant with the law of the Lord read in between this blood ceremony. So what does all of this mean? What are we to make of this bloody and and messy and smelly exhibition that really is just going to get worse as you move through the Pentateuch, reading about entrails and all the rest? Well, there's a lot for us to think about here, but just consider a couple of things. First, think about the placement of blood directed toward the altar and directed toward the people. Now, blood is directed toward God, not because He is in need of cleansing, but it's actually a sign of mercy. It is the sacrificial blood of a substitute that enables them as a defiled people to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be pardoned, for the wrath of God to be turned away. And really, the only hope in this covenant ceremony is that the blood of another would be accepted, that because of the death of another, they can find forgiveness and they can be included in the covenant. And as the people are sprinkled with blood, they are consecrated. They are set apart in devotion to the Lord. But you see, it's not just the blood as though it has something inherent within it. We are to look beyond the blood to see the benefits of what the blood is pointing to. It's the benefits that are applied to them through the sacrifice of another. The benefits of what this sacramental sign points to are remarkable. Pardon and atonement, cleansing, consecration, forgiveness, and more. This is a bond in blood sovereignly administered, as Palmer Robertson puts it. But another important thing to note is the order in which all of this happens. It is the blood of the substitute upon the altar first, the terms of the covenant affirmed by the people, then the blood of consecration placed upon them. Alec Moiter writes, the blood moves first Godward in propitiation, then secondly manward in consecration consecration in obedience to the law. But there is more that's vital to note here, I think, and that is this, that it is the same batch of blood directed toward the altar and the people. Though collected in two basins, this blood is from the same source. It is the same shed blood, and through that same shed blood that they are both forgiven and bound in covenant oath. 
It is the sacrificial blood applied to both the altar and the people that links them together. God will most certainly keep His promise while they are obligated to respond in grateful obedience. And you can see how all of this wonderfully points to the all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus, can't you? This is all divine initiative. This is the Lord God and His love for us that moves Him to send His only Son as a propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 9, we are justified by His blood and saved from the wrath of God. Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. Ephesians 2, 13, we were once far off but have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9, 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And you hear that clearly there in Hebrews, this twofold application of Christ's blood to purify the conscience and serve the living God. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are cleansed in the work of Christ Jesus so that we can now serve the Lord, living lives of consecration and devotion to Him. And just think of the parallel here between verse 8 of our text and the words of our Savior. Look again as Moses holds up the basin of blood. Listen to what he proclaims. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. In Matthew chapter 26, in the upper room with his disciples, Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then after the covenant ratification ceremony, we shift to a new scene that begins there in verse 9, back to the mountain of God. And this is the second main point for us to see from the text, and that is celebration in God's presence, verses 9 through 18. And again, we find three steps into the presence of God. First, there is gazing upon the glory of God. And so you have Moses, his brother Aaron, his two sons, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders who accompany them. And at this point, of course, we're not all the way up the mountain. And as they look up, they see this crystal clear floor above them. It's this floor of the heavenly throne room that is so pure that they can see through it and behold the feet of God. Ezekiel has a similar vision in which he sees this pavement as sapphire beneath the throne of God in Ezekiel 1 and 10. And there's something very remarkable that's going on here. Because later, you'll remember in Exodus chapter 33, Moses articulates his desire to see the face of God, and the Lord replies, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So how can these men look upon God? How can they gaze upon Him and not be destroyed? Verse 11 even notes that the expectation would be judgment, but the Lord does not lay His hand against them. And you see, don't skip over the remarkable thing here, that it is God who invites them into His presence, eating 
and drinking and seeing him and not being consumed. All of this, you see, is clear indication that the goal of the Lord is to restore his intimate presence with his people, to commune with them and they with him. And notice the description of what these men see is more of a description of the surroundings of God than the Lord himself. It's the throne room and the pavement beneath his feet because what they see is still somewhat veiled. They don't see the Lord in his full radiant glory because Exodus 33:20 is still true. They cannot behold his glory and live. As one author puts it, he writes, God takes to himself the form of humanity as they look upon his feet. And he does it again in the person of Jesus as he comes down from that throne in the weakness of human form. This is why Jesus can say in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And the reason that they were able to come even this close is because of the acceptable sacrifice of a substitute that had just occurred at the base of the mountain. And so think about the wonderful truth that's being captured here. We are separated from God because of our sin, but it is God who has atoned for our sin through the shed blood of the covenant. And because of that shed blood of another, we are welcomed into His glorious presence. And one day, we will see something that is even more spectacular than what these men saw. We will see the radiance and glorious and majestic face of our Savior. And beholding Him as He is, we will be transformed into His likeness. At the graveside service for our brother Doug White's mother, Dolores, this past week on Monday, Pastor McWilliams pointed out this wonderful truth that now in the presence of the risen Christ, she is a greater theologian than John Calvin was in his earthly life. She has a better understanding of the covenant of redemption than John Owen did in his life. She has a greater understanding of the triune nature of God than Augustine did in the early church. This is what God's people have to look forward to. But there's a second wonderful step that they take in the presence of God as this covenantal meal is something they participate in together upon the mountain. It really would be enough to catch a glimpse of the glory of God, but in verse 11, we read that they eat and drink with Him. And we might ask, well, where did all of this food come from? Certainly, the Lord could have miraculously created this food out of nothing and provided it for them. But remember, there were two main offerings at the base of the mountain on the altar. The burnt offering, in which the entire animal would have been consumed in the flames, and the peace offering in which a portion would have remained for the people to partake of in that fellowship meal. And I think this is simply part of that peace offering in which they eat really a sacramental meal with the Lord. They eat of the flesh of the substitute, for they have peace with God. And this is a meal of covenant fellowship. It is a meal that signifies friendship and intimacy and peace with God. One commentator summarizes the whole scene like this, that God first invites the leaders of Israel to worship in verses 1 and 2. He spoke to them through His Word, and they responded in faith, promising to obey. But their obedience could never be perfect, 
And so God provided a sacrifice for their sins. Finally, God invited Israel's representatives to sit down for a meal of covenant friendship. Atonement had been made for their sin, and now the way was clear for them to have table fellowship. And they not only saw God, but they also ate and drank with Him. In the New Testament, Jesus likens the coming of the kingdom to a feast. We read in Revelation chapter 19 about the wedding supper of the Lamb, a feast that will never end. And I think it's remarkable that we see here in Exodus chapter 24, we really see both sacraments of the new covenant in shadow form. We see the shed blood of another and the sprinkling of that blood upon the people for their consecration, and then the sharing of this covenantal meal. It's a foreshadowing of baptism, marking that entrance into the covenant community through faith in the work of Christ. And it's a picture of the Lord's Supper in our continual participation in that covenant and the blessings of it. But this really is the point that I want us to draw comfort from, that it is the Lord who longs to have intimate fellowship with His people. He is the one who creates the way toward restoration. But there's a third step as Moses goes further into the glory cloud above. Now, throughout these chapters, it's a little difficult to tell how many times Moses goes up and down the mountain of God. Perhaps we're, understand, to un- perhaps we're to understand here that after this covenantal meal is celebrated, that these men go down from the mountain, and Moses gives instruction on who's to be in charge upon his further absence, and then goes back up with Joshua. Perhaps Joshua stops at that place where they shared the fellowship meal while Moses goes further up into the glory cloud of the Lord where he will remain for 40 days and 40 nights and his life miraculously preserved by the Lord. And it's during this time that he will receive the instructions that will come to in chapters 25 through 31, the presence of God in the tabernacle. You see, rather than being driven from God's presence as in Eden, He now draws them to Himself, granting them access, granting them life and instruction on how they might come to restoration. And this, too, is a wonderful foreshadowing of what will happen to all of the people of God. Christ Jesus and His finished work upon the cross is the all-sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. It is that work upon the cross that satisfies the wrath of God, and now we are brought into covenant fellowship as we long for that final day of feasting and resting in His presence, and it will end with our entrance into glory. God has come down in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will lift us up to be with Himself. And I hope you can see what a theologically rich chapter this really is. I hope you can see what a high point in redemptive history we find here in this chapter. And as wonderful as the experience of these men must have been, we should keep in mind that there's a warning in this text. Because you see, any good little Jewish boy or girl, when this story would have been read to them, and they heard those names, 
not only Aaron and his failure to lead the people in that rebellion of the golden calf, but his sons, Nadab and Abihu, who in Leviticus chapter 10 offered unauthorized fire to the Lord, and in their presumption were consumed in the wrath of God. But along with that severe warning, there's also assurance and hope for the one who looks by faith to the substitute of another. And as we close, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And so let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And so here's the great confidence for the one who trusts in Jesus. We have forgiveness of all of our sins because of the shed blood of Christ. And you see, once you are sprinkled with that shed blood, there's no being unsprinkled. I've thought many times about these narratives in which the blood of the substitute is scattered upon the people. And I've thought, if I were there, would I try to hide behind someone so the blood doesn't get on my clothes? Because you know if that blood is splattered on you, it's not coming out. There's no bleach at this time of history, of course, but it's with you forever. That mark of sprinkling is always upon you, just, of course, as the mark of covenant baptism is always with you wherever you go, and you cannot undo the hope and promise of the Lord. Revelation 7.14 reads, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the great hope that is ours. This is what I pray is used by the Lord to stir our own hearts toward greater worship of our God and greater obedience unto Him. And so may God be pleased to work such comfort of His pardoning grace in our lives as we long for that most glorious day.